welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual book prizes, as well as conversations with book lovers from across the province and territory. On this episode, you'll hear from an author whose titles include This Is Your Brain on Stereotypes, How Science is Tackling Unconscious Bias, Under Pressure, The Science of Stress, and Shadow Warrior. Here's my guest for this episode. All right, my name is Tanya Lloyd-Kai, and I write all sorts of different books for children. Tanya isn't just a writer of children and teen books, she's also a reader of those books. And so when I asked her which character she'd be from any novel, she turned to the pages of a book she recently finished. Oh, most recently, I think I would be Alice Fleck from Alice Fleck's Recipes for Disaster by Rochelle Delaney, who's a local Vancouver writer. And it's such a funny book about a girl and her dad who wind up in a cooking, a TV cooking show. But they're cooking like historical dishes and there's a little bit of mystery and a little bit of um, a little bit of deviousness and lots of and lots of food and cooking. And it was very fun. Tanya's book, Me and Banksy, is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize, and she starts our conversation with a reading from the book. Okay, so I'm going to read a few pages. I'll tell you before I start that Dominica and her friends go to quite a fancy private school that has installed a lot of security cameras. And then there's one little mention in this piece of someone called Lou, who is the building concierge, whose only purpose in the book is to say really um, kind of Eeyore-ish things throughout. (laughs) So it pops up. Um, This chapter is called The Quick Flip. On Wednesday morning, I step out of my elevator to find both Sandy and Holden waiting in my lobby. I know immediately that something's wrong. Holden's eyebrows almost meet in the middle, and Sandy's biting her lip. I feel as if I should brace myself. There's not much to hold on to in the marble expanse of the lobby. Dangerous world out there, Lou says. No one answers him. I follow my friends outside. What is going on? Holden shrugs and neither of them see anything until we're around the corner. Then they drop onto a bus stop bench and tug me down between them. What is going on? Sandy passes me her phone and I press play. Crap, crap, crap and triple crap. This is worse than nose picking, much, much worse. Welcome to the Mitchell Academy Forums. This is a place for students to learn new information and help their peers. Please follow all forum rules and guidelines in order to create an atmosphere of respect. You are visitor 285 today. Mitch Girl Gone Wild posted by admin 28 times five on April 24th at 1.10 a.m. Miranda, this is mean, you should take it down. Plant, sir. Way to take a joke, Miranda. EVF. Not like it didn't happen. The truth will out. MTG 3456XXX. Take it off. The film is shot from above and slightly behind me. I'm sitting alone in the library, crowded bookshelves framing me. Music swells. Ridiculous music, as if someone clicked the suspense theme in a filmmaking app. I glance first over one shoulder, then the other. The video flips to slow motion. As if I'm doing a secret striptease, I reach down and pull at the hem of my shirt. 
the fabric slides up slowly, exposing my bra strap, then my shoulders. With a final flip, I peel it off entirely. The video cuts to black. I can't look up. Holden and Sanvi huddle close on either side of me on the bus stop bench, but I can't look at them. When I try to make words, nothing comes out. I feel as if someone's punched me. Dom, Sanvi says eventually, why were you stripping in the library? She was not stripping, Holden says, and I'm so grateful I lean into him. I wasn't stripping. I'm probably the person least likely to take off my clothes at school. Most likely to kiss a boy, Miranda Bowen. Most likely to seek attention, Anna Kavanaugh. And not even those two would strip on camera. Josh and Max would do it, but they'd do almost anything, and they wouldn't care about video evidence either. But why? Sandy asks again. I didn't, I blurt. My shirt was inside out, and I flipped it. There was no one else there. As the last word dissolves into a wail, Holden wraps an arm around my shoulders. Over the past three years, we've had a half dozen school talks about social media safety. They've all focused on one thing. You shouldn't put your breasts on the internet. You shouldn't text them to your boyfriend. You shouldn't let anyone take pictures of them. You shouldn't put them on snappy. Various speakers repeated this until I wanted to grab the microphone and tell them to move on because of course no one would ever go topless on the internet. Except now I've done exactly that. Thank you. As you were doing your reading, I had this kind of thought of, uh, you're probably like me, where we experienced a time before all of this social media and the risk of being caught on camera. Were you thinking about your own experiences as a teenager and how they compare to what teens are going through now with all of this, like this kind of hyper awareness of how they present themselves, not just with their peers, which we've always had to deal with, but on a whole other level on the internet. I've had to think about it quite a bit because I have teenagers and everything else in parenting, you just kind of do what your parents did and it works out fine, but there's no guide for social media because our parents never had to do anything about it. So it's, it's been complicated and tricky figuring out what to tell the kids and, and really they know so much more about everything than I do anyway. <laughs> but this book was more prompted by research I was doing a few years before I wrote this for a nonfiction book about surveillance and privacy called Eyes and Spies. And I read lots of stories when I was researching that about kids getting in different sorts of problems online. And that inspired the problems in this book. Yeah, I, I wanted, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that, but I thought the surveillance part was really interesting because I think it's something we're all more and more aware of just in terms of what we do online, but also in the last, I guess, 10 or 15 years where cameras have become more of a thing um, following terrorist attacks and that sort of thing. They really put cameras out in the public. And I think maybe adults are aware of it in a different way than teens are. Are, they, are we think about it in a different way than teens are? And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about coming at it more from a teen point of view than an adult perspective. I think I think privacy is different for adults than it is for teens, because we have our own homes or apartments or at least rooms and apartments usually. But teens don't have that. They don't have their own houses where they have privacy. And sometimes they don't even have their own bedrooms where they have privacy. So they're their life happens much more in public spaces. You know, they don't invite friends over for dinner parties. They go out and they hang out outside and they hang out in parks and they hang out in malls 
And increasingly, all of those places are on camera. And I think that cameras change sometimes the way we act, if even without, we don't, we don't realize that we're changing, but when we know we're being watched, we act a little bit differently. And we might be less likely to say an opinion that we think, you know, say the principal or the teacher would disagree with. If we're on a school video camera, we might be less likely to try on different identities on different days, which I think is important in middle school and high school. So there are all these interesting things about cameras um, that I hadn't necessarily thought about until I started looking into it. I often think, too, how much different it is with teens now, because they have a camera with them all the time, almost like most kids who have cell phones now have a camera in their hands at all time, which definitely wasn't the case when I was a teenager. And, and I just think how much different that is where you can capture the world around you and also capture yourself on, on a minute to minute basis. And we couldn't do that before. And I am so glad that the pictures in my high school scrapbook are only in my high school scrapbook. <laughs> <laughs> Well, isn't that because we had to wait? We had to wait to like have pictures developed. So it wasn't that thing where you took a picture and you're like, oh, God, not that one. And you take another one. We had to wait for the pictures to come back from, in my case, it was London Drugs. And then you throw out all the bad ones. <laughs> yeah. And in my case, they were they were all evidence of the spiral perm days. Best to be forgotten. <laughs> Well, I want to talk about the other part of the book. Well, there's many parts of the book that are interesting, but um, but Banksy obviously comes into the book. He is mentioned in the title. And uh, I wondered if you could chat about why you were interested in including his art, but also his activism in your book. I have always loved Banksy. I love every time a new story comes out about something, some art piece or some trick played on the public. So... That's that's been a long time thing, but I hadn't thought of it for this book. I'd written the first few chapters of this book. I'd had Dominica get into trouble with this video, and there's a few other people kind of with problems with this stolen surveillance video. And then I was stuck, and I didn't know how to have her fight back. And then my teenage daughter came home one day with a copy of The Poet X, and I just saw the cover and the title and I thought, oh, the poet X, I bet that's about a graffiti artist who does like graffiti poetry. That would have been such a good idea for my book. I wish I'd thought of it. <laughs> and then and then when she finished with the book a few days later, I read it and I was like, oh, this isn't about graffiti at all. And then I was like, I could use it. I could be, I could use the graffiti artist. <laughs> so then Banksy came into it. I always, I do find it interesting in books that somehow all the things that I like or things that I'm interested in that originally I think have nothing to do with the premise of my book somehow worm their way in. Yeah. I think it's interesting too. And as I'm, we're talking about this, I'm thinking too about how much has come up in the last uh, five or t 10 years with, with um, youth activism, with uh, young people taking a stand ag against things from gun control to climate change and everything in between. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if that was something you were thinking about, about engaging with that kind of youth activism about social justice and the power that young people can have in their lives, but also in the world at large, too. Definitely. And I, I think most of my books have have young activists in them. 
And I think that young people are some of the most successful activists right now. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of personal attacks that happen against people who who are activists in life. And I think somehow the the young people are slightly sheltered from that because they're because they're kids. You people can't attack them as harshly. Although I know I do realize that some people do. But I also think there's so many big problems in the world that our generation and previous generations have failed to solve that we've left to this to this younger generation. And now they are required really to learn the, the skills and, and have the gumption to do something about the state of the world. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking about as I was reading the book was kind of this time in young people's lives where this switch happens and they start to, they shift from like family to friends and how their identity is shaped. And, uh, and I'm often curious about how, how teens and preteens are, are shaped in books and represented in books and wondered what your thoughts were on how, how we represent young people in literature and if it's changing how we create teen characters in books. I think that, you know, Dom is the type of teenager that I wish that I had been. She's, she's probably stronger than, than would be usual and feistier than I would have managed to be. But she also, I also think that one of the truest things about that time of life is how close your friends can be and how dear to you they can be and how important as a support against all the crises that happen in life at that time and that's one of the ways this book started with that really close friendship between Dominica and Zombie and Holden and that was the most fun part of writing the book was writing the interactions between the three of them hopefully when when tweens and teens read this book they feel like I got that part right I think too it was also fun to watch how that how that group evolved, but also how their assumptions about people changed as they kind of let people into the group that helped with the final project. And I think that's um, something that that is always important to learn is that, you know, our assumptions about people, our judgments about people uh, can change and, sh- and should change as we get to know them. Yeah. And it's interesting because sometimes my assumptions about people change as I write the book. I don't necessarily plan all that at the beginning. And then somehow I was like, oh, that guy's not that bad. He's actually, actually quite nice in this way. <laughs> and they change, they change through the writing sort of naturally. So do you, do you plan out your characters in advance? To, or do they really just kind of take on a life of their own as you're writing? They take on a life of their own. Usually partway through the book when I get stuck, then I start doing a little bit of attempts at outlining, but I, in general, am a very terrible outliner. So most (laughs) of it is trial and error, which causes more rewriting, but it's, I try to think of it as fun and the process of exploration and not think of it as, holy, I have a lot of more work to do. (laughs) But yes, I wish I could outline, but I don't manage it. (laughs) I think sometimes it's more fun you can tell sometimes when someone doesn't outline because it feels like you're on a journey, more of a journey and an exploration with the writer, maybe than someone who's got it all planned out ahead of time. Or That's you how can it tell felt. that they have an outline because their book is coherent. <laughs> <laughs> 
I didn't feel I didn't feel that way with me and Banksy. I don't. It's funny because I don't have uh, I don't have kids, but I read all of these teen and kid books for for the book prizes. And I was telling my husband, "You should read this book." So he is, he's going to read it now. And you know, his kids are mostly grown now, but it is a great read for all ages. I thought. Thanks. Thanks. I think so. <laughs> Yeah, the other part that I I was curious about, and I think I've become like, there's things I've become aware of because I read all these books for the book prizes, but I was also interested in the relationship between Dominica and her mom and her grandma, because I find those mother-daughter relationships so interesting, and they seem to be uh, such fruitful places for stories to grow out of. And I was curious about that part of the book for you and um, how that developed. Dominica's grandma was was also one of the very first characters. The way the book came to be was was partly because of Dominica's grandma, whom I love. I do think at that time of life, that sort of end of elementary school, beginning of high school time of life, is when you start to see your parents as real people and not just your parents. And you start to see that they have great things about them and they have flaws, just like you have flaws, and you're going to have to find a way to manage that. So that was one thing. And then the other thing is, is I wanted more ways to explore privacy and surveillance. And as well as happening at school, school there's, also, there's also privacy issues happening at home. And Dominica's mom probably gives her too much freedom and too little surveillance. And grandma maybe goes the other way. So it was fun to play with those levels at home as well as at school in her life. Yeah. And it seems like that natural kind of, you need to, to have the school life of a teenager, you need to also have that balance and the tension of the home life. Cause I don't, I think all teens go through some tension with their parents, especially around privacy. I remember a lot of door slamming and uh, that sort of thing in my house as a, as a kid. So I, I remember those ideas of privacy and having, protecting your privacy as a teenager feels so important. It's true. Yes. And and it should really, as as kids are getting closer and closer to having their own independent lives, they should get to have that cordon off parts of their lives within reason. <laughs> <laughs> do your do your teenagers read your books? Yes, they're actually very they're very good editors these days. They I have a fourteen year old son, and then my daughter's seventeen now, and they both they both read them quite critically and give me tips. And um, in this book, my daughter rewrote all the texts. She said, I texted like a grown up and she rewrote them all <laughs> for me. Uh, although some of them, the one, the texts exchange, especially about the two-legged giraffe, I stole directly from my daughter's texts with her best friend. <laughs> I just, I, I asked them and then I just took the whole text exchange and put it in my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I think some, that. Texts are probably one of the hardest things to write because I think I still text like a, a grown-up where everything needs to have proper punctuation and capitalization. <laughs> I have yeah. to try to hit a middle ground because my son texts with no, like not even full words. Um, and and I text in paragraphs. <laughs> I have to hit somewhere in between there. <laughs> yeah. It was really, it was actually quite fun to write this book because of the little... Um, I've called it pick snappy, but little YouTube portions and uh, and little uh, texting portions. But it makes it a hard book to read from whenever somebody asks me to do a reading. I'm like, oh, how do I read the texts and how do I read the posts? Chicken. Yeah. 
Have you been able to do a lot of classroom visits uh, through the pandemic or? I have actually, surprisingly. Um, I probably did more in the last year than ever before and all over North America, which was, which was quite fun. And what were some of the responses to the book as you were doing those events? I've had lots of, I've had lots of good questions about it and lots of, um, yeah, lots of different views on, on surveillance and stories and, and, yeah, but it's, it's been good responses. And I think the, the humor in the book seems to appeal to kids, which is nice. Yeah. One of the things I most often hear uh, is how much people love the cover of the book. What did you think of the cover when you saw it? Um, it took me, when I first saw it, it was different. It was the very first time I saw it, it was a white cover. And then the words had been spray painted in red and there was the squirrel, but it looked like blood. And I was like, it looks like a squirrel has been murdered in this book. <laughs> and then they changed it to the white on, on red. And then the, um, the paperback is like a day glow pink on yellow, which is really fun. Um, but it was, it was totally entirely not what I had expected because I thought I'm reading, I'm writing a teen girl story. I assumed there'd be a teen girl on the cover, but it's so visually arresting that you can't, I can't resist it at least. It's great. Cause you don't, you don't really know what the book is about, but once you get to the end, it, the cover makes so much sense. Like it, mm. it doesn't, cause it doesn't have a teen girl in the front. You don't, maybe it attracts different readers for that reason. Maybe I'm not sure. Because I live in Vancouver and this is published by Penguin Random House in Toronto, I have never met most of the people I work with on this book. And both this book with the squirrel with its googly eyes and my previous novel, which is Maya's strategy to save the world. And she in the illustration has googly eyes. And my husband said one day, do you think that everyone at Penguin Random House actually has googly eyes? And we just don't know. <laughs> So this is our working theory right now. Everyone at Penguin Random House has googly eyes. Secretly has googly eyes. We, I guess we need proof to find <laughs> out. <laughs> I also have never met anyone, I don't think, at Penguin Random House. So maybe they do all have googly eyes. It's a mystery. Thanks to Tanya for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks, as always, to you for listening to Writing the Coast. If you'd like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Our submissions are currently open, so if you've had a book published in 2021 and are interested in having it considered for the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website for the criteria and more information on how to submit. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with David McIlwraith. David is the editor of The Diary of Duke Sang Wong, A Voice from Gold Mountain, which is a finalist for the Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.